2: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant
0: and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: Did you know that Behind the Knife has a vascular surgery oral board review book? It is true. A couple of years ago, we realized that there were no resources to help us study for the vascular surgery boards, so Ravi Ambani, Andrew Wishy, and myself, Kevin Canary, put together a book based on the notes we made studying for the boards. It has 60 of the most essential cases in vascular surgery in a question-and-answer format, similar to what you might find in an oral board scenario. We start off with the diagnosis making, talk through the brief surgical procedure, and then cover the common complications for all 60 of the scenarios. Whether you're looking to excel in the wards or crush the boards, this book is for you. Check it out on our website or on Amazon. It is titled Vascular Surgery Oral Board Review Behind the Knife Premium.
2: Hey BTK listeners, it's your Miami Trauma Team back for another Journal Club episode. Today's episode I think is quite relevant given recent events because unfortunately at the time we're recording this episode, there were not one but two mass shootings in the country in the last week. So today our episode will be focusing on gun violence. Injuries are the most common cause of death among children, adolescents, and young adults between the ages of 1 and 24 years in the United States. The Center for Disease Control has recently published in its Whiskers data, which is the web-based injury statistics query and reporting system database, reporting that starting in 2020 and for the first time ever, firearm-related injuries became the leading cause of death in ages 1 to 19. This change signifies both the rising number of firearm-related deaths in this age group and the nearly continuous reduction in deaths from motor vehicle crashes. Major medical journals have dedicated editorials, perspective articles, viewpoints, and themed issues to this subject in these past months. While this might be surprising to some, this comes with no surprise to trauma surgeons, as we're busier than ever taking care of young Americans injured by firearms across the U.S.
0: There have been over 120,000 firearm injuries yearly in the United States, which is 329 firearm injuries daily, or three 9-11s every month, and over 45,000 deaths in 2020 only. About 124 people die every day due to firearm injuries. Most deaths occur outside hospitals, and we surgeons don't even get a chance to try and save those lives. For violent firearm injury, about three out of four survive. This has a major cost to the U.S., of over $150 billion yearly, which is more than the entire Health and Human Services annual budget. That doesn't even include other quality of life factors related to mental health, post-traumatic stress, sense of safety, and uh, community stability. Until recently, gun research was not afforded federal funding. The Dickey Amendment of 1996 stopped any funding to the CDC if it could potentially advocate or promote gun control which essentially banned any gun violence research. This amendment, lobbied by the NRA, the National Rifle Association, was a reaction to a 1993 New England Journal of Medicine article by Arthur Kellerman and colleagues. Their research found that gun ownership tripled the risk of homicide in the House. Unfortunately, the amendment led to almost three decades with a total paucity of funding on firearm injury and gun violence research. There is no comprehensive national data source on firearm injuries, with current databases missing large swaths of population. It wasn't until 2012, where the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, where former President Obama specifically directed the CDC to conduct research into the causes of gun violence and prevention, that any federally funded study was performed. And in 2018, congressional negotiators finally reached a deal to change the language of the bill to allow for research. The first round of government funding for such research went into effect spring of 2022. Even still, research funding is woefully inadequate, with only 12 million allotted for gun violence compared to 88 million for road traffic injuries and 335 million for cancer.
1: Research is critical to reducing gun violence so we can properly understand true risk factors for firearm injury. In short, we're interested in both primary and primordial prevention the upstream causes. Based on the best evidence to date, violence is both a cause and consequence of social inequality. Structural inequalities intersect and compound the burden of firearm related injuries. Income, poverty, underfunded public housing, under-resourced public services, underperforming schools, lack of opportunity and perceptions of hopelessness, the ease of access to firearms for high-risk individuals, and citizens' low trust in institutions have all been identified as social factors influencing this burden. The lack of funding, however, has meant that researchers have had to be creative in designing unfunded and underfunded methodology in order to approach these issues, even if tangentially. Rather than dissecting each study's robustness today, though, as all will have drawbacks due to the social context of limited funding, We instead will use this as a call for more funding and more research so we can design solutions based on evidence instead of ideology. The hard, indisputable data shows that the U.S. is a severe outlier when it comes to gun violence. The reasons for this are multifaceted, complex, controversial, and likely unique to U.S. history and culture. Thus, we should explore all potential causes and their relation to each other. We will use one such recently published paper as a jumping off point to do that.
2: Right. So getting into the topic of our paper, specifically, we will be discussing a recent paper that's out of the JAMA Open Network, and it's entitled Association of State-Level Firearm-Related Deaths with Firearm Laws in Neighboring States. It's a paper out of the School of Public Health at the University of Alabama at Birmingham by Dr. Liu and his colleagues. Along with this paper, we have a few others that we referenced throughout the episode, And I just want to stress that we're not here for political arguments. We just want to have a frank, evidence-based discussion about this problem that has been especially prevalent these last few years. So let's get right to it. Essentially, the authors point to recently increasing numbers of gun-related deaths that have occurred in recent years since the pandemic. They also note that this is an extension of a prior paper from Dr. Liu, who previously did a similar observational study in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, In that study, he used state data from 2000 to 2017 to look at the association among state firearm deaths, state firearm laws, and presence of neighboring states with more lenient laws. In that study, they found that weaker firearm laws in neighboring states correlated with more firearm deaths within a state and concluded that having neighboring states with more lenient laws may undermine the effectiveness of within-state firearm laws. This newer study differs from the previous one in that they use a much more granular approach to how they categorize different firearm laws and also use a different spatial analysis to account for geographical distances between states.
0: Diving a little more into the methods, the authors used the CDC Whiskers database between 2000 and 2019. The primary outcome was firearm-related death, with secondary outcomes being firearm-related homicide and suicide. For data on firearm laws, they used the State Firearm Law Database, which was created by Dr. Siegel out of Tufts University. This is an interesting part of the study because this database has 14 different categories for the laws, which included bioregulation, dealer regulation, background checks, domestic violence-related gun laws, concealed carry laws, etc. So it really gives a granular look at the effectiveness of each of these different laws. We will have a reference to Dr. Siegel's paper, which includes all these categories in the show notes. The authors included nine categories that have uh, previously been found to have a possible association with interstate movement of guns and gun-related mortality. These categories were a background check law, which is universal background checks at the point of purchase, a licensed dealer laws which require state dealers for a license for handgun sales. Permit laws, which include requiring the license to buy any gun. Gun show laws, which require background checks for handgun sales specifically at gun shows. Violence prohibition, which prohibit firearm possessions for people who have been convicted for committing prior violent misdemeanors. Record keeping laws, which require private sellers and licensed dealers to keep records of gun sales. Straw purchase laws, which prohibit purchasing a handgun on behalf of someone else. Relinquishment laws, which require those to relinquish firearms after they're prohibited from possessing them. And the may issue laws, which gives authorities discretion to decide whether to allow a concealed carry permit or ban all concealed weapons. So after finishing with these categories, I'll also uh, add that the authors also made sure to control for other covariates that can affect the number of violent deaths like population size, unemployment, poverty, education, property crime rates, which they used as a measure for propensity for crime in the state, and others. They also looked at population percentage with a hunting license, a per capita number of licensed gun dealers, those as indicators for household uh, gun ownership, and uh, measured the state sentiment towards firearm regulation using voter data, which has been previously associated with rates of firearm injury. The authors built a uh, spatial autoregressive linear model to study the association between one state's firearm laws and another state's firearm deaths, with the spatial aspect meaning they also considered the geographical distance between the states.
2: So now getting into the results, first of all, they had identified a rate of 10.8 firearm deaths per 100,000 population during the period, and they had a mean number of firearm laws of 15 for each state. They ended up with five laws that were included in the final model, which were permit laws, gun show laws, violence prohibition laws, relinquishment laws, and the May issue laws. They were selected based on previously well-evidenced model selection methods to achieve highest quality, and the other types of laws were removed from the model due to issues with collinearity. For the primary outcome variable, which was total firearm deaths, there was a within-state, interstate, and overall association Found with permit laws and violence prohibition laws but not for the other three types of laws interestingly there's a striking difference when it comes to the effect size for within-state and interstate associations for example when looking at permit laws the interstate effect size is five times that of within-state association this difference was similar for violence prohibition laws when breaking down total firearm deaths into homicide and suicide only permit laws had a significant association with homicide rates for both within and interstate associations. For suicide rates, only violence prohibition laws had a significant association within state, interstate, and overall. So to summarize, according to their model, implementing permit laws would be associated with a decrease of any firearm-related death and firearm-related homicide for within states, interstates, and overall. Prohibiting firearm possession for individuals who have committed a violent misdemeanor or the violence prohibition laws would also potentially decrease within-state, interstate, and overall firearm deaths as well as suicide rates. Dr. Rattan, how do you interpret these findings? So,
1: first of all, I think the important thing to take away from this is that permit laws and violence prohibition laws work and are predicted to continue working if implemented more widely. However, the interesting thing to note here, which I think is relatively novel, both in study design and finding, is the spillover effect. That is, lack of laws creates problems for surrounding states, and implementing laws has positive ripple effects for those same surrounding states. In other words, as a single state, you can do all you want to reduce gun violence with legislation, but if you're next to a state that has minimal restrictions, you're going to be undermined on some level. Understanding that travel across state lines, including with firearms, is essentially unrestricted in the U.S., that kind of makes sense. If I'm in a restrictive state that doesn't allow me to purchase a firearm and it takes me an hour to drive to another state in order to get that firearm, I'm likely going to do it. It seems like from this modeling, most people who will end up injuring or killing someone with a firearm would do it, in fact. On the other hand, if we had to drive two states or three states away, that number drops off, which again makes intuitive sense. Taking it to the logical conclusion and interpreting the hard data from the study, if we truly want to have effective legislation around firearms in order to effectively reduce injury and death, we need federal laws managing access. Trafficking of firearms across state borders has been previously shown to be a significant factor in firearm injury, and this only supports those findings. While we're on the topic of prior research, It should be noted that other studies have looked more directly at just within-state effects of laws using Whiskers data and have found and replicated that laws such as universal background checks are significantly associated with reductions in firearm death. Further, a recent systematic review and practice management guideline from the Eastern Association of Surgery for Trauma reviewed studies on gun safety devices such as cable locks and trigger locks and gun safe storage and found that both reduce the incidence of firearm injuries. While the study we looked at today did not directly address the following hypothesis, there are some arguments by proponents of broad, unfettered firearm access that increasing the supply and availability of guns and protecting those who use guns to defend themselves reduces death, injury, and crime with a deterrence effect. Unfortunately, the evidence does not seem to support that. We mentioned Kellerman's New England Journal study from 1993 that found that gun ownership tripled homicide rates. Living in a house with someone who owns a gun also triples your death rate largely for women who are the vast majority of people killed as a result due to intimate partner violence. These findings have been reproduced consistently over time and through a variety of methodologies, as well as systematic reviews and meta-analyses. When zeroing in on mass shootings like those that have happened the week before this recording in Virginia and Colorado, the vast majority, over 75%, are perpetrated with legally obtained firearms countering the oft-made argument that legislative interventions have no role because shootings are happening with illegal guns. Further, protecting people who use guns to defend themselves with what is commonly known as stand-your-ground laws has never been shown to reduce homicide rates. In fact, in most states, there is zero correlation between stand-your-ground laws and effects on crime. It does not act as a deterrent. In some states like Florida, there are actually significant double-digit percentage increases in crime and homicide. And overall, what Stand Your Ground laws have been repeatedly associated with in robustly designed studies is an increase in firearm homicide. It is important to note that several studies have demonstrated a racial bias in the application of these laws as well. That is, if a white person uses Stand Your Ground to shoot and kill a black person, they are more likely to be acquitted of any crime. On the other hand, a black person who shoots and kills a white person is more likely to be denied a valid stand-your-ground defense. This institutional and structural inequality in the application of law and justice cannot be overlooked when seeking to have an evidence-based discussion of solutions seeking to decrease firearm violence. Back to this study. Overall, I think the major takeaways, again, from this is that if we are interested in reducing firearm injury and death, we need to focus on laws that prevent initial access— such as permitting and violence prohibition laws, rather than laws that restrict the type of access once you have a gun already, such as may issue and relinquishment laws. And we need to focus on that on a federal level rather than a state level.
2: Thank you so much for those comments, Dr. Rattan. I think that that was an excellent summary of the available data that's out there so far in the literature regarding firearm injuries and the complex interactions of firearm laws, social determinants of health, mental health, and the growing public health crisis gun violence is causing in this country. That's data, I will say, which is still lacking and which we are excited to obtain in the coming years now that there's been a push to fund research at the federal level. We look forward to seeing what this first round of funding from the past spring will bring to the literature and hopefully how it shapes policy moving forward.
1: One final comment I'd like to make is circling back to some of our introductory comments. We cannot have a conversation about firearm injury in America, which is largely assault related, as we said, without taking a giant step back and looking at upstream causes. In that sense, gun violence is merely a symptom rather than the root issue. Mental health plays a real but small role within this. As previous studies have shown, any solution that exclusively addresses mental health without addressing access will have an insubstantial effect on suicide and intimate partner violence and virtually no effect on firearm homicide rates. The larger issue is the inequity and injustice that is baked into our social fabric. Among developed countries, we have some of the worst racial and socioeconomic disparities in income, education, food and housing security, upward social mobility, gender-based violence, and institutional racism. A true comprehensive approach to reducing gun violence cannot start and end at firearm access, but must also address the structural inequalities present around us.
0: Thanks for these comments, Eva and Rishi. You know we're discussing the issue of uh, firearm injuries, violence, and law. And obviously, I'm learning that the topic of gun ownership has unique cultural and legislative significance in the United States. Now, I would like to share my own perspective as both an international medical graduate coming for fellowship in a major armed trauma center in the United States, and also as a person coming from Israel, a region of conflict where there is a mandatory military service and having served myself for several years in the Israeli army. So during fellowship, the amount of firearm injuries I saw getting to Ryder on a daily basis, it was unfathomable. I was just amazed by how much it was a routine to witness and treat those uh, intentional or unintentional uh, victims. And I understand there's concern by many people that firearm laws will limit and endanger uh, their freedom and their constitutional rights, However, I just can't understand how people ignore the fact that the current state of affairs with firearm violence, it's close to anarchy. I mean, people are injured and killed every day. And you don't get to hear about almost any of it, unless it's mass shooting. And if you think there should be no change with how firearms are handled, it means you think that everything is okay right now, and there is no problem. And let me tell you what I saw And what trauma surgeons know, there is a big problem. And we've talked about it, and you've listened uh, to the numbers. And there might be a question of what exactly needs to be done, but the things have to change.
2: Now it's time for our quick hits. Number one, firearm injury is the leading cause of death in the U.S. among ages 1 to 19. Number two, for every person killed violently by someone else with a firearm, there are three survivors. Number three, gun ownership triples the risk of homicide. And number four, permit laws and preventing people convicted of violent crime from owning a firearm decrease firearm-related death and have a positive ripple effect even outside state borders. In short, for effective reduction of firearm-related injury and death, federal legislation will be a more effective strategy than state by state. That's it for now from your Miami trauma team, but we'd like to wish you a happy holidays, happy new year, and keep dominating the day.